0: Nelson, a talk researched and written by Joanne Watson and Michael Aber for the Farnham U3A series of theme meetings about national treasures. Listen to Joe Watson tell us the story of the life of this seafaring legend and hear what the Nelson Touch means. First of all, I should say that this talk actually was written by Michael Lebert. Unfortunately, he's not in a position to give it, so he sent me the script. Any mistakes in it are due to the tweaks I've made in the script since he sent it. I know he did a lot of research before this started. and I know he's watching on Zoom, so good morning to Michael. Each year on the 21st of October at 8 o'clock in the morning, the Royal Navy observes a special ritual. The flags are the most memorable signal ever sent from a British warship, are hoisted to the main house of HMS Victory in Portsmouth Dockyard. I'm sure you recognise that particular signal. England expects that every man will do his duty. It is Trafalgar Day, the anniversary of a naval victory so devastating and complete that it put an end to war at sea for over 100 years. It's a sign of affection for the great naval admiral who lost his life that day, 216 years ago, off the coast of Cadiz in Spain. Now, Nelson was certainly no saint. He was vain, irritable, self-pitying, and as we all know, unfaithful to his long-suffering wife. But when he died, his sailors forgot about the great victory they'd secured in an outpouring of grief for their lost commander. Well, let's go back to the beginning. He was born prematurely on the 29th of September, 1758, in the village of Burnham Thorpe, near the coast of North Norfolk. He went to school in Norwich, then North Walsham, and finally to a third school at Downham Market. He was brought up in the Parsonage House, a substantial building, and it had to be because his father, the Reverend Edmund Nelson, the rector of the Parish of All Saints, and his wife Catherine had 11 children. Now, three died in infancy, which wasn't unusual in those days. Horatio, or Horace as he was known at home, was christened quietly on the 9th of October because he was such a sickly child and then more formally on the 15th of November. Now Catherine had valuable social connections. She was related to the Walpoles, and Sir Robert Walpole, who lived nearby at Houghton War, was the first Prime Minister. But it was her brother, Maurice Suckling, a celebrated and senior naval captain, who was to be the key influence in Nelson's career, as we shall see. Now Nelson's childhood took an unexpected turn when he was just nine, Christmas in 1767, when in the space of a week his mother and grandmother both died. His 12-year-old sister Susanna took over the running of the home until she was apprenticed to a milliner. His father Edmund continued as he had done before the deaths, taking long holidays in Bath to escape the winter wind in Norfolk. So it was Uncle Morris who stepped into the breach to steer his career through his notable connections, not for the first or last time. Now at this stage, Morris was captain of the Reasonable, which was lying in dock at Chatham. And after Horatio pleaded to be allowed to go to sea, Morris allowed him to join his crew. He was twelve, and would have been classed as a captain's servant, one of several on warships at that time. In reality, servants in the navy were apprentice officers. Now Nelson was considered small and sickly, and even as an adult, he was no more than five foot six. He'd never been outside Norfolk before travelling by coach to King's Lynn, then on to London, and finally to Chatham. At first he couldn't find his uncle's ship, and when he did, he wasn't there, so Horatio stayed on deck all night waiting. It's a strange coincidence that Nelson's first and last ships were both moored together at Chatham that day. Now the Reasonable was expected to sail to the Falklands, but at the last minute was put on guard duties in the Medway estuary. Captain Suckling was then posted to another ship, but realising that continual guard duties was no way for a boy to gain naval experience, he got his nephew a job on a merchant ship, the Mary Anne. It sailed from London to the West Indies. It was on this journey that Horatio first suffered from seasickness, which he had for the rest of his life. Now, the voyage took about a year, and he learnt a lot about sailing and navigation. Horatio then returned to Uncle Morris and was promoted to midshipman, which ensured he would have a good, sound start to his naval career. After that spell in the merchant navy, a much more relaxed service, it was hard to get back to the tougher and frankly brutal lifestyle, but he managed it and, as we know, flourished despite his seasickness and rather frail health. Press gangs were in constant use to crew the ships, punishments were severe, and food especially for the lower decks, was certainly not coronable standard. In 1773, Nelson was included on a trip to try and find the fabled Northwest Passage, the route through to the Pacific via the north of Canada. Horatio, by then just 14, left his ship one day to try and kill a polar bear, so he could give the skin to his father. It all ended up as a potentially disastrous episode when he was facing up to a huge bear and his musket failed to fire. Fortunately, his quick-thinking captain saw what was happening and fired a cannon to scare the bear off. Young Horatio certainly learned a lesson that day, and of course the expedition failed to find the route, and they returned home. Now his next ship was a frigate called the Seahorse. Now frigates were fast, lightly armed warships who were the eyes and ears of the navy, often acting independently and usually kept away from the heavyweight military engagements. Nelson served on many, gaining valuable experience, but his first mission could well have been his last, as on board the seahorse sailing to the East Indies, he contracted malaria. He was desperately ill and wasn't expected to survive, so he was put on the next ship home. Nelson himself was pretty sure he'd die, and decided, well, even if he did live, he wouldn't have a future in the Navy. Then, in a burning fever, he says he had a vision of a radiant orb. As he later explained, after a long and gloomy reverie, in which I almost wished myself overboard, a sudden glow of patriotism was kindled within me and presented my king and country as my patron. His survival instinct kicked in, I will be a hero, and confiding in providence, I will brave every danger. Well, this was something the young Nelson never forgot, and must have had a profound influence on his future career. Eventually he recovered from his malaria, though it was to reoccur throughout his life. Now fortunately for us, Nelson was a prolific letter writer. Eight volumes have been published, which chart his life very conveniently. In April 1777, Nelson was called to London to sit his exams for a commission. The Navy's rules clearly stated that there was a minimum age of 20, and Nelson was only 18, but probably due to the influence of Uncle Morris, he passed with flying colours, and just two years later, he was promoted to post captain, almost certainly the youngest captain the Royal Navy has ever seen. And he wasn't yet 20. Well, the next few years marked something of a low point militarily, and once more, his malaria returned, and he had to be shipped back home. He headed to Bath and began his slow recovery. Now, Nelson seems to have used his time there considering the problems faced by his men and thinking about the effect their death or injury had on their families. Seeing so many shipmates die inevitably coloured his approach throughout the rest of his career. He subsequently always arranged for his crews to have fresh provisions, especially lemon juice, which helped to prevent one of the biggest killers in British warships, scurvy. Three years later, in 1782, Horatio had made a full recovery and joined a Lord Hood's squadron off New York where he met another influential man who was to have a major impact on his career, Prince William, son of George III, later to become William IV. Now William was then a young midshipman on Lord Hood's flagship, and the future king reported in his journey that Captain Nelson was the nearest boy of a captain I ever beheld, he went on. His dress was worthy of attention, he had a full laced uniform, his and powdered hair was tied in the stiff Hessian tail of an extraordinary length. The old-fashioned flaps on his waistcoat added to the general quaintness of his figure and produced an appearance which, well, particularly attracted my notice, for I had never seen anything like it before. But the prince concluded that there was something irresistibly pleasing in his address and conversation when speaking on professional subjects that showed he was no common being. Other men Nelson befriended and stayed close to for the rest of his life included Collingwood and Trowbridge, future captains under Nelson, and hugely important seamen in their own right. Horatio had many close friends and always cared deeply for the welfare of his men, but he kept a firm discipline from time to time using floggings and worse when needed. But we mustn't fall into the trap of looking at history from our modern day perspective. Times were very different then. The punishments did, though, protect the rest of the crew from the lawless ones amongst them. He ran his ships with strictness, fairness and sympathy rather than fear. His crews responded with loyalty and devotion. When his second frigate was laid up, his men, every one of them, including all the pressmen, volunteered to serve under him again, and he was still only 21. Incidentally, he took a short holiday to France and later wrote, I hate the country and their manners. Nelson was never really content at being a peacetime sailor and came into his own in wartime. So when the American War of Independence was over, he started to find things more awkward. He was never much of a social animal and whilst he was happy with his crew and close friends, he found formal dinners, parties and receptions caused his shyness to come out. Now His next job was to prevent the Americans trading with British possessions. British law stated that as the Americans had made themselves foreigners, they weren't allowed to conduct trade with any sort with our colonies. Horatio took this law literally and made himself unpopular over it. The trouble was that the Americans needed trade and so did the colonies, who until his arrival turned a blind eye to the law. He became so unpopular in the Caribbean that on some islands he couldn't even go ashore. He became lonely and probably depressed, so he got married. He was 27. (coughs) His wife was Fanny Nisbet, a widow with a five-year-old son, Josiah, who many years later was destined to save his life. Horatio and Fanny had met some years before and had corresponded ever since. She was almost certainly the widow of one of his shipmates who he met when he was in the Caribbean. One of his letters said, My dear Fanny, with my heart filled with the purest and most tender affection do I write this. I daily thank God who ordained that I should be attracted to you. Fortune, that is money, is the only thing I regret the want of, and that is only for the sake of my affectionate Fanny. My whole life shall be devoted to make you completely happy, whatever whims may sometimes take me. We are not of us perfect, and myself probably much less than you deserve. I am, etc. Horatia Nelson. And perhaps this letter, one of many in a very similar vein, shows us a little of the future of their relationship. Whilst they speak of affection and respect, love is hardly ever mentioned. Unlike the many letters he later sent to the other love of his life, but more of that later. Now in the 18th century, Merritt would get a sailor so far as captain, but after that it was down to seniority alone. In other words, dead men's shoes. In peacetime, there were more captains than ships, so Horatio went home to Norfolk to live the life of a minor country gentleman. It went on for five years, doing all the things he disliked, parties, dinners and the like. Fanny hated the cold and damp of Norfolk after the West Indies and was not much used to him socially, and they had no children there together to distract them. He pestered the admiralty endlessly for another ship. But it wasn't until 1793, when the French executed Louis XVI, that he got one. He was very lucky. He was given command of the 64-gun Agamemnon, as he said later, his favourite ship. With war starting again, this time against France and Spain, he was, at 34, suddenly a happy man once more. His role was to be in the Mediterranean as part of the Navy's remit to keep Napoleon's ambitions under control and to prevent him invading Britain. It was when he was stationed in Naples that Horatio met the British ambassador, Sir William Hamilton. He was 62 years old and his young wife, Emma, who was less than half his age. Now, born in Cheshire, her real name was Amy Lyon. She left home as a young teenager to get a job in London as a maid, but became embroiled in the sex trade. She fell pregnant by a reckless young aristocrat, but at the age of 16, got lucky. She found a protector, Charles Greville, a younger, nice but dull aristocrat. She gave up her child and was renamed by him, Emma Hart, to reduce the gossip around town. Now after a while, Greville decided that he had better get himself married to a rich heiress and his bit on the side was, well, just for a while, a bit awkward. So he sent her on loan to his uncle, Sir William Hamilton. He fully intended to reclaim her when things settled down. Not surprisingly, Emma was furious with this deceit but remarkably settled into Neapolitan life, and then old Hamilton surprised everyone, and possibly himself, by marrying her. Now I should for the record state that modern historians are much more sympathetic to Emma than most of their predecessors, though she was hardly a typical ambassador's wife. Now Nelson didn't spend too long in Naples on this occasion before he sailed off to Corsica, where he was in charge of a shore battery near the old town. Here, he was hit in the face by a piece of shrapnel when a shell exploded close to him and he was temporarily blinded in his right eye. Now, some say he lost his eye, but this appears not to be accurate, and the admiralty went on record in 1804 to this effect, though his eyesight did deteriorate. Contemporary portraits never show him with an eye patch, which was added by early 20th century filmmakers. Now, we generally think of Nelson as having three great victories, the Nile, Copenhagen, and Trafalgar, but it was the earlier victory at Cape St Vincent in February ninety seven that set him apart as an outstanding commander. The Admiral was Sir John Jervis, who sighted a much larger Spanish fleet off the coast of Portugal. The way that sea battles were fought in those days was determined by the very narrow arc in which the guns could fire. The larger ships were all lined up and sailed in opposite directions to their opponents, with all guns on that side blazing, which led to the term a ship of the line. Now, it's worth explaining a bit about naval hierarchy. There were nine sorts of admiral. There were rear admirals, who were less important than vice-admirals, who in turn were inferior to admirals of the fleet. (coughs) After that, the navy was divided into three colour-coded divisions, the blue, the white, with the most important, the red, and each with three sorts of admiral, so a total of 60, 20 per colour. So it seems that red admirals are not just butterflies. (laughs) Now, when there were insufficient ships for officers, they were paid half-salary on shore leave, although (laughs) it was often rather less than half-pay. But back to St Vincent. Jervis found the Spanish fleet were somewhat ill-prepared early in the morning of Valentine's Day in 97, not in one line, but in two distinct groups. Jervis was considerably outnumbered and outgunned by the Spaniards, but his crew were better trained and led. Now Nelson was near the end of the line, and he realised the battle would be over before his turn came to have a bit of fun, but having been given the freedom to use his discretion, he sailed away from the enemy, tacked back, and fought six of the Spanish ships, one after the other. Now it wasn't acceptable for officers of captain or above to get involved with boarding enemy ships, but Nelson personally led one successful boarding party. And as you can imagine, his men loved the fact that he would personally get involved with the dangerous bits of the job, and that is largely where the love and respect of his crews came from. Cutting a long story short, Nelson was awarded the Order of the Bath and a knighted for his efforts, then shortly afterwards promoted to a Rear Admiral of the Red. Now, Nelson was a bit unsure about whether his adventures and successes would be reported accurately back home, so he even wrote his own version of events and had it published which of course earned him the praise and adulation that he craved so much, and it has to be said, richly deserved. Not everything was plain sailing after the initial battle. The Spanish had retreated to the harbour in Cadiz and wouldn't come out. A subsequent blockade brought no more dividends. Spies, however, told Jervis that a Spanish treasure ship was approaching General Tenerife with a huge amount of gold on board, so it was decided they should attack the ship in Santa Cruz Harbour. Nelson created the plan, including the use of 4,000 Marines who would land and attack the ship from the interior, whilst his ships bombarded the town from seaward. Unfortunately, things didn't work out as fewer Marines were made available, and Santa Cruz was well defended. Now, the first British landing party was forced to retreat, so Nelson decided to lead the second attempt himself. But as he was embarking from the ship's barge, he was shot through the elbow, shattering the bone and cutting the main artery. He immediately fell to the floor, but was looked after by his stepson, Josiah Nisbet, who was, as ever, at his side. He used a neckerchief as a tourniquet to stop the flow of blood. Now, Nelson himself frequently stated afterwards, that is what saved his life. The ship's surgeon amputated his right arm, and the severed limb was thrown into the sea on Nelson's orders. But You can see Nelson had a few things to say after the amputation. He wanted all the instruments worn by the surgeons before they tried it on someone else. Now, not surprisingly, he returned to London in a very depressed state. Who, he wondered, would want a left-handed captain? But as he arrived in London, he was greeted by the crowds, cheering him all the way, which must have improved his mood. Nelson's wound took a very long time to heal, but he and his wife Fanny were at their happiest together during this time, attending the theatre and various society functions together, he soon bought a house just outside Ipswich, called Round Wood. This modest little cottage comprised four bedrooms, two parlours, but about 50 acres. Unfortunately, the conveyancing took so long that he returned to actual service before they could move in, and he didn't even stay a night. As Michael says, nothing changes in the world of lawyers, does it? Now Nelson was back on active service in the Med in March 98 in HMS Vanguard, Now, as an admiral, Nelson didn't have to do the tedious work of organising the provisioning and stocking of the ship, but he did arrange to have on board 20 sheep, dry-fed of the best, but not the largest kind, plenty of good hay, corn, fowls, ducks, geese, four hampers of Bristol water, one cask of loaf sugar, ten kegs of tripe, two boxes of oysters, and one box of essence of spruce. I've no idea what that was for. As a flag officer, you would have to do a fair amount of entertaining, although the sailors down below didn't eat this well. They were given a diet of about 5,000 calories each day, which sounds a lot, but they would certainly have needed it for hauling sails up and down, manning the capstans and moving the heavy guns on deck. There were very precise orders about what should be issued to the men, and just what could be substituted for items that weren't available on journeys. So. Half a pound of currants or half a pound of beef suet is equivalent to one pound of raisins. A pint of wine or half a pint of spirits is equivalent to a gallon of beer. So the men didn't eat badly overall, but there was certainly no room for fussy eaters. The basic rations didn't alter between 1733 and 1847. Now There was little in the way of fresh food, fruit or vegetables on the high seas, but dried peas, salt, pork and beef, oatmeal and hard tack featured heavily and were washed down generally with beer. Officers usually clubbed together for a few of the finer things, typically about £60 a year, which was all a lieutenant would earn. Now This time Nelson and his small fleet were required to find out the destination of a huge French fleet which was assembling in Toulon. It proved very difficult. And although reinforcements arrived, a storm resulted in the British fleet scattering and the French escape from port. The Captains met to discuss the likely destination of the enemy and decided that the most likely option was Alexandria, supporting Napoleon's attack on Egypt. Nelson's squadron raced off, only to find that the harbour was empty. He got there first. He then scoured the Mediterranean backwards and forwards, looking for the elusive French before eventually catching up with them... In Alexandria. Up went signal 16 from the vanguard, engaged the enemy more closely. They were well out of range, but it was a real battle cry and fired up the fleet into battle. The French were taken by surprise and ill-prepared, with skillful seamanship in the narrow and shallow waters the British attacked and started a huge fire on the French flagship Lorient, which soon exploded, causing damage to several other French ships. Apparently, the explosion was so loud it could be heard in the town of Alexandria, 15 miles away. Now, during this battle, Nelson received a wound from a piece of language. This was a particularly nasty anti-personnel shot, consisting of loose bolts, nails, and various other pieces of metal tied together in a loose bag and fired at close range. Poor old Horatio thought he was going to die, but it turned out only to be a superficial wound. But the scar was there for the rest of his life. Underlining the respect that Nelson had for his sailors, he insisted on waiting in line for treatment when his turn came, rather than getting immediate attention. Now, the French defeat undermined Napoleon's Egyptian campaign and the Mediterranean ambitions of those of his allies. The teamwork and closeness of the British captains was later referred to by Nelson as his band of brothers, a phrase that has now entered our language. At this stage into the story comes Thomas Masterman Hardy the new appointed captain of the vanguard. Hardy was a very talented sailor and administrator who remained calm whatever occurred and was a perfect foil to Nelson himself. Now the fleet then went to Naples to refit and repair their damage Where Nelson met up again with the British ambassador, Sir William Hamilton, and his wife. Now Nelson was still suffering from his head wound and old Sir William promised that his wife Emma would be happy to nurse him back to health. And as we all know, she did that rather well. (laughs) <laughs> now, whilst in Naples, Nelson learned he'd been created a peer, but only as a baron, the lowest order of a peer. Now, he and his family were apparently outraged as Jervis had been created an earl for rather less at St. Vincent. But the Turkish government awarded him a shalank, which is a plume of triumph made from diamonds, and the Tsar of Russia presented him with a jewel miniature of himself. Nelson gave his Maltese cross to Emma and subsequently, around this time, bought a painting of her, which he kept close by. Now, Nelson then went to Palermo in Sicily, and to a strange period in his life. He got himself controversially involved with the internal politics in Naples, and his inexperience in this sphere resulted in a group of Republicans who had been granted safe passage, being handed over to the local authorities and killed, which didn't endear him to the locals. He then started to act completely out of character. Now, as we have already seen, he took great pleasure in getting stuck into things and leading from the front, but suddenly he changed. He refused to leave shore for months at a time. His commander-in-chief, Admiral Lord Keith, gave him direct orders that he refused to obey. He sent ships and men off to various conflicts, but he didn't go with them. We don't really know what happened to cause this sudden personality change and depression. It may have been a combination of love, perhaps a bit of guilt attached. It could have been a problem caused by his headwood, or been caused by the defeat of Santa Cruz. Eventually he was sent home, effectively in disgrace. He travelled with Sir William and the now pregnant Emma overland, mainly through Germany, and took four months getting to London, where Emma gave birth to his daughter, Horatio. Though Nelson was absent, he was back at sea, though now promoted to vice-admiral. It has been suggested Sir William knew little of the affair between his wife and Horatio, but this clearly isn't the case, as he was still a very effective and astute ambassador and a highly intelligent man. It seems the affair was conducted with his full knowledge and blessing. The three of them were very close friends and referred to themselves as the Tria Juncta in Uno, three joined in one, a joking reference to the motto of the Order of the Bath that both men had been awarded. In spring 1801, Nelson was back in action, destined for the Baltic, an area essential to Britain as there was a huge amount of trade with that region, especially in naval stores and timber. The Russians, at that time close allies of Napoleon, had put a ban on British ships trading in the region, and the navy were instructed to sort it out. As they prepared to sail, Nelson took the opportunity to go to London for three days and met his daughter Horatia for the first time. Emma seems to have been rather hostile to him going off to sea again, perhaps it was postnatal depression, but he destroyed all her letters, though she kept his replies, often three or four in a day. By this time he was referring to her as my own dear wife. While sailing across the North Sea, Nelson held his now trademark intensive briefings with the captains of the other 21 ships in the fleet and formulated a plan for the forthcoming battle at Copenhagen. The Danish fleet turned out to be better equipped and stronger than Nelson had anticipated and was supported by very strong defences. The British fleet started to move towards the Danes. Unfortunately, three of the vessels ran aground on the sandbanks, leaving Nelson rather short of firepower. Ignoring his own orders and plans, he went by a different route and probably saved more ships getting stuck. But three of Nelson's ships were flying signals of distress, and others were as ground, so Admiral Hyde Parker, the very cautious leader of the entire operation, signaled to discontinue the de-engagement. There's been a lot of controversy about exactly what he meant. Some felt it was just discretionary, so allowed Nelson to use his initiative, whilst others took it literally as, get out. This is when Nelson is supposed to have raised his telescope to his blind eye and said he didn't see any signals. It's more likely that the other version of the story is true, that Nelson said to Captain Foley, Foley, you know I've lost an eye, and have a right to be blind when I like. Whichever version is correct, Nelson and his fleet ignored the order. Now, several of the British ships were running short of ammo, and most were badly damaged, but fortunately the Danes surrendered. The Russians decided not to fight, as the Tsar Paul had just been assassinated, and his successor Alexander wanted to restore friendly relations with Britain. Nelson then returned to Emma, having written a note saying, My dearest friend, I hope in God to be with you long before this letter, but whether I am or not, believe me, I am, and forever, your faithful Nelson. And then as a postscript, best regards to Sir William, I have neither seen nor heard of anything since we parted, but what consolation to think that we shall soon tread on the same island. As a reward for the victory, he was created a viscount. He was also presented with a teapot by the City of London. It only later transpired that the teapot was a French manufacturer, not the most appropriate gift at all. Now this battle is considered by most naval historians to be Nelson's finest victory, rather than Trafalgar. It showed his tactical daring and planning to better effect. When Nelson got to London, he found that the country was in the middle of an invasion scare by the French, so this time it fizzled out. Nelson was given permission to go ashore to his new home at Merton, where Emma, Horatio, and of course Sir William were all waiting for him. The trio then went on a tour to South Wales and the Midlands, and Nelson was greeted as the great hero wherever he went. Not surprisingly though, there was always scandal about his relationship with Emma in polite society, and Horatio was always known as Nelson's ward, which to be honest, fooled nobody. Now, the beast was always a very fragile one, and within a year it was clear that war with France was looming once more. Nelson was formally appointed commander-in-chief of the Mediterranean fleet in May 1803, when war was declared. He was to fly his admiral's flag in HMS Victory, which was, and indeed still is, a three-decker ship with over 100 guns, and at that time a crew of over 800. He was 44 years old, just a little older than the ship. Now Nelson found the French fleet again in Toulon, but they escaped during yet another storm, and this time sailed towards the Caribbean to join their Spanish allies. Nelson initially thought they'd headed in the other direction, and went on with a naval equivalent of a wild goose chase. Not surprisingly, he was very frustrated, writing in his log, I am very, very miserable. Oh, French fleet, if only I could get up with you, I would make you pay dearly for all that you have made me suffer. When the French returned, they were blockaded into Cadiz and Nelson returned home for a rest, but found that his life was a constant round of entertaining, which, as we've seen before, he didn't much like. Incidentally, by now, Emma is a widow. Now, Nelson was actually involved in high-power talks and had several meetings with William Pitt the Younger, the Prime Minister, the Admiralty, and he also spoke in the House of Lords. But soon he was ordered back to fight what we now know was his last battle off the coast of Cape Trafalgar in southwest Spain. Before leaving, Nelson had a meeting with Lord Castlereagh. He was waiting in the Minister of War's waiting room when a young man who turned out to be Sir Arthur Wellesley, later the Duke of Wellington, was also there. We've no record of Nelson's side of the story, but many years later the Duke recalled that Nelson had first behaved in a very vain and silly way, talking only of his own achievements, until, that is... He suddenly realised that he was talking to someone out of the ordinary and left the room to find out who was his companion. When he returned, he was transformed and went on to impress the soldier with his statesmanlike judgment and knowledge of international affairs. On the 11th of September 1805, Horatio and Emma had a service in Merton Church where they exchanged rings. And so later on, Friday the 13th of September, Nelson left Emma, Horatia, and his equally beloved Merton for the last time to drive to Portsmouth. He reached there early the next morning and was taken out to the Victory, which was moored off the Isle of Wight, moving through a vast crowd of enthusiastic well-wishers. He arrived off the coast of Cadiz, keeping most of his ships out of sight and keeping in contact with each other, using Popham's new telegraphic system of signals. He developed his new metal pan, the Nelson Touch as it became known. And when the wind was favourable to him, he launched the attack at dawn on the 21st of October, 1805, when all 27 ships formed up in battle order, a line of over five miles long. Now, as usual, he said his prayers in private. Then, moving slowly due to the light breeze, the ships formed themselves in two divisions. They moved and prepared for action. Now, we know the words of his prayer because he'd written it down beforehand. And these words are used every year on the 21st of October by the Navy. May the great God whom I worship grant to my country and for the benefit of Europe in general a great and glorious victory, and may no misconduct in anyone tarnish it, and may humanity after victory be the predominant feature in the British fleet. For myself individually I commit my life to him who made me, and may his blessing light upon my endeavours for serving my country faithfully to him. I resign myself and the just cause which is entrusted to me to defend. Amen, amen, amen. He then went through the entire ship speaking individually to each crew member in turn, then called his signal lieutenant, John Pascoe, over and told him to signal to the fleet using the new system. England confides that every man will do his duty. Now Pascoe suggested changing confides to expects because there was no signal for the word confides, so it would have to be spelled out. Nelson agreed, and that is how the famous signal came to be sent. Now, it seems that some or most of the fleet failed to read or at least understand the signal, but they certainly saw and understood the one that immediately followed it. Close action. Signal number 16 again. Now, it had been assumed that the enemy ships would turn and try for home, but unexpectedly they chose to fight. The wind was in the wrong direction, so they really had no option and it was a fatal mistake as it was to turn out. The breeze was light, so Nelson's ships were moving at no more than walking pace, and there was a great concern for Nelson's personal safety, as the ships would, at that speed, be in close firing range for about half an hour before they could bring their own guns to bear. Everyone knew that the lead ship would be the victory, and just what Nelson looked like. It would have been hard to disguise a one-armed man in full admiral's uniform with his decorations displayed on his chest. Undeterred, Nelson sailed on through the constant shooting and sailing his big three-decker like a frigate sharply swung between his French rival, Admiral Villeneuve's ship, the Boucantier, and the following ship, the Redoubtable, captained by Jean Lucas, with guns blazing. Now, Victory and the Redoubtable got tangled together, which created a huge gap that the other British ships could sail through. He had separated the enemy into two parts. Further south, Admiral Collingwood had splayed his ships out into a fan shape and was attacking the French and the Spanish on a ship-by-ship basis, despite being outnumbered and under tremendous fire. Victory was still tangled up with the redoubtable, and the sharpshooters positioned in the French ship's rigging were taking a heavy toll on the British flagship. Nelson and Hardy continued to lead from the front by setting an example and slowly marching up and down the quarterdeck between the 12-pounder guns to show the men that they were not afraid. At about 1.15, Nelson felt a sharp blow on his left shoulder, instantly followed by a distinct snap as his backbone was shattered. He fell to his knees in a pool of blood, exactly where one of his men had been killed earlier. And by the time Hardy got to him, he knew he was dying. Hardy, they have done it at last, he said. And when Hardy tried to say otherwise, he said, my backbone is shot through. He was carried below, insisting that his uniformed stars were hidden from view so his men wouldn't know it was their admiral who had been injured. Had they been, they could have been discouraged. He was put in the cot and was looked over by the surgeon, Dr William Beattie, who confirmed what Nelson had said, and nothing could be done for him. Now the battle raged on, and despite the first three British ships suffering appallingly, by 2.30, things were slowly going Britain's way, with great work from the Redoubtable and the Temeraire. Temeraire of Turner Painting, you remember. Only then was it when, when Hardy was at last able to go down to see the Admiral. He told him that 12 or 14 of the enemy ships are now in hands, and he was sure they were giving the French and Spanish a real drubbing. Hardy went back on deck for 50 minutes and then returned to Nelson, where he took his hand and congratulated him on a decisive victory. Nelson said, God bless you, Hardy, and asked that his body be taken home rather than thrown overboard. Made a request that he take care of dear Lady Hamilton. Then asked Hardy to kiss him on the cheek, which Hardy did. His last words were indistinct, but certainly included God and my country. Things were neatly summed up by Captain George Houston of the Dreadnought. Lord Nelson lived to hear that victory was gained. He said he died happy, recommended the fleet to be anchored, embraced Captain Hardy, who he loved as a son. And gave up his ghost. His death is greatly lamented by every person. Now he endeared himself to the seamen and the officers by his humanity, and congrats conciliatory manners in him and the country. But they had lost the greatest admiral of his age. In total, seventeen ships were captured, and another was a blazing inferno. The victory was so complete there was not another major naval battle for over a hundred years. Now, communications were fraught, hampered by a fierce storm, and news of the battle and his death, and Collingwood's dispatches, were sent by HMS Pickle, a small schooner which landed eventually in Falmouth. They were sent post-chase, 21 changes of horse, over the 270 miles in 37 hours to London, but it was November the 6th before the news reached the Admiralty and the papers. The times captured the mood of the nation, we do not know whether we should mourn or rejoice, The country has gained the most splendid and decisive victory that ever graced the naval admins of England, but it has been dearly purchased. The great and gallant Nelson is no more. Now, Nelson's body had been placed in a cask filled with brandy and then transported to Gibraltar on the victory where spirits of wine were added and replenished to preserve the body. On arrival in England, the body was then placed in a lead coffin filled with more brandy before eventually being placed in yet another coffin Made from L'Orient's mainmast, the ship that had been destroyed at the Battle of the Nile, and had been given to Nelson in 1799, in total six coffins and 700 gallons of brandy were used. After lying in state at Greenwich, his body was taken by barge up the Thames, then by carriage to St Paul's. Now the gilded coffin was placed before the high altar during a five-hour service. The congregation of around 7,000 mourned his passing, and the procession took 15 minutes to reach its destination. It was only a few yards away. The coffin was lowered into the crypt, and the marble sarcophagus originally intended for Cardinal Wolsey, a few centuries before. Nelson's brother, sisters, and a strange wife received state pensions or gifts, but Emma received nothing. She was left Merton in his will, but also had huge debts to pay. She and Horatia ended up in a debtor's prison in London, then went to Calais to escape her creditors. She died destitute of amoebic dysentery, aged just 47, in 1815. The bulk of Nelson's estate was left to his brother. Incidentally, Nelson's uniform from the battle was given to Emma, but she sold it to pay some debts. It was bought back by Prince Albert. Horatia later married Reverend Philip Ward, producing 10 children, and lived until 1881. In her adult life, she never acknowledged that her mother was Emma Hamilton. Now, as we know, many memorials to Nelson exist all around the former British Empire, with a course line in Trafalgar Square. What I don't quite understand is why the Tsar of Russia gave so much money towards the memorial. Four million pounds would have been quite a lot. Now, that is there for everybody to see, and a few years ago, a sort of homage to Nelson was added in Trafalgar Square on the fourth plinth. It was so successful, it was bought up, and it's now at Greenwich. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio, in association with the Farnham u 3 Thank you very much for listening to this talk.